Hi everyone, I'm Katie, and I'm gonna be reading two different passages from Job. The first is Job 38, verses one through 11, and then the second is Job 40, one through seven. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Now chapter 40, one through seven. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. The word of the Lord. Katie just read us two excerpts from when God finally speaks in the book of Job. It's 37 full chapters. And then God shows up to Job. Even when God speaks in the opening two chapters, it's not to Job. It's to the Satan, or what our Bibles call Satan, although it's not the same Satan. You'll have to go back and listen to the first message. It's not the same Satan that we think of in the New Testament necessarily, but it is a demonic being. And so it, even when God speaks, it's not to a human. He talks about humans. But now God finally shows up. And all the commentaries that I've read and Heather can attest, they keep showing up to the house. So many people have written on this book because it wrestles with the question of suffering. And all the commentaries that, that I read, they all said the reason that there's 35 chapters of dialogue between Job and his friends is because you can't rush suffering. And if any of you have suffered, and some of you are like young, and you've suffered more than some really old people. Some of you are young, and you have yet to suffer. But everybody plays on the same field when it comes to suffering. You will suffer at some point in your life, and some of you will suffer much more deeply than others. And when you go through that time, especially if you are a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, when you go through that time of suffering, it will be even tougher for you because you know God could have stopped it. And that's what Job's wrestling with here. God could have stopped it. And not only could God have stopped it, but Job didn't deserve it. 
And so before we get into this dialogue, I just want to do a quick little review if you were here, but if you haven't been here, I want to just remind you or I want to tell you that Job is really a foreshadowing of Jesus. There's this Job-Jesus comparison, and Job is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus was righteous, and he was a blessing to others. Job was righteous, and he was a blessing to others. Jesus was blameless and cursed. Job was blameless and cursed. Job just comes first. He's this big foreshadowing to what Christ would look like. And if you are here last week when Barrett taught, I listened to his message. It was a great message. He taught about the retribution principle. We talked about that the first couple of weeks. This idea that, that the righteous get rewarded and the wicked get punished. The only problem, because there is truth in that, but the only real problem if you keep to a super narrow view of the retribution principle that if you're good, it will be good with you, and if you're bad, God will punish you, is that in that principle, you have no room for Jesus. And Job is paving the way to show us that sometimes innocent people suffer, and the most innocent person ever was Jesus and he suffered the most. So Job has no idea here that he is being this foreshadowing person of the Lamb of God who is to come. What an incredible mantle to get to wear. And yet how terrible it would be to never know that this side of heaven. And as best we can tell, Job never understood the full picture of what he would be for us, this foreshadowing of Jesus. Job has one big question about God. His big question, if you boiled it down, if you boiled all 32 chapters, uh, is that right, 35 chapters, if you boil all 35 chapters of dialogue down, what we really get is one big question. Job is basically saying, hey, I ruled well in the limited areas of my dominion, so God, what's wrong with you? Job's big question, when it finally comes down to before God speaks, he basically says, I ruled well in my limited areas of dominion. Why don't you rule well in yours? The three of you that got that Christopher Ash book, I got that quote from that book. It's a great, super readable book. Christopher Ash has written a bunch on Job. That little purple book is probably my favorite of his writings. I want to just pause with that. Let's keep that, that quote up on the screen. Let's talk about your prayer life real quick. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that to God? I want to just challenge you over the next seven days, before the next Tuesday when we gather or this Sunday when we gather, I want to challenge you to, to maybe shift some of your prayers. Have you ever thought that when you're battling with picking up your phone or picking up with your, your Bible that God knows that battle is happening? I want to just take baby steps into the waters of Job's language with God. Job, Job, like, worked real hard to be able to be super honest with God. I want you to start with some baby steps. Baby steps like, Lord, I do not want to read my Bible right now. I would rather look at my phone. God, I'm going to go out with so-and-so on a date, and I want to do some things with them that I probably shouldn't. 
and then follow it up with, so help me not do those things. Give me the strength. Lord, help me to want to read my Bible. Give me the strength. God, I don't want to pray. This is about as far as my prayer is going to go. I don't want to pray. I challenge you to say things like that because the Bible gives us permission to be super candid with the Lord. Psalm 73, Psalm 42, Psalm 63, all of these Psalms and many, many more are these incredibly candid prayers. And so I would just challenge you, just drop the jargon that you use if you're like a rote prayer person. How many grew up with the, with the blessing around the table, the same one every night? Anybody? I see that hand. God is great. God is good. Let us thank you for our food. By his hands we are fed. Thank you, Lord, for daily bread. Amen. I hear that. That's right. Yeah, some of you, same family. I didn't see you at the table. Um, but yeah, like some of us have those same prayers growing up. Some of you grew up in, in, in the Catholic tradition. You had prayers that you prayed. Some of you grew up in other traditions. You had prayers that you prayed. I grew up in a Southern Baptist family, and we still had prayers that we prayed. And we didn't even have like the Book of Common Prayer. We just made our own up and dug in there. Um, you know, you occasionally have the Waffle House prayer, Lord, do what you can. Um, you know, you have like, like there are, there are different prayers, but still, you know what to pray at whatever restaurant you go to. And so I just, I want to just encourage you just to drop those, just drop those and let us just at least take one thing from Job that he was honest with God. Now, the hard thing about honest prayers, and this is what we're going to see with Job tonight. Honest prayers have to see me as small and God as big. That is the one caveat for an honest prayer to work. It's got to be a small view of me and a high view of God. That's my one little aside. I have one more aside in just a minute. And, uh, and so then we're going to get into to Job. Here's the next aside. We do see his fourth friend. We have his three friends. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, but we do have a fourth friend that enters in Job chapter 32. I would love to give him some press more than just like the next three minutes or four, but that's all I'm going to give him. His name is Elihu. Elihu is an interesting guy. Elihu is you. He's the young guy. The three old guys show up, and I think Elihu showed up with him. He was just like quiet and respectful in the back. And so Elihu shows up. He is what I would call the young, restless, and reformed. If you're familiar with that, that was a movement that happened in the 2000s. This is Elihu. He is the young, restless, and reformed. He's the only one of the friends who at the end of the book, God doesn't rebuke. God rebukes the three friends that talk most of the time, but he doesn't rebuke Elihu. So this is an interesting guy. Elihu is, is not a super, he, he's, he's not happy. He's not happy at all with Job. Just flip back to Job 32. I'll show you his biggest gripe. What is Elihu so mad about? Look at Job 32, 2. Then Elihu, the son of Barakali, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. Because Job justified himself rather than God, he made himself out to be right, which by necessity implies that God is wrong. So Elihu comes in and he listens to all this talk with all the old guys and he comes in and he's like, let me tell you something, Job, God is right. And a lot of scholars for a long time just dismissed him because he never gets mentioned again. But 
it is very possible that Elihu is like the only prophetic voice of the three friends, of, or of the four friends. Elihu's the only one who says the right thing. He uses the whirlwind example twice in his little speech. And what Katie read just a minute ago is that God shows up in a whirlwind. So Elihu has a high view of God and a low view of self. And that is absolutely right. Let me just tell you, some of you have tried to be an Elihu to me. And I so appreciate that. You corner me afterwards and tell me all the things I've done wrong on more than one occasion. And so let me just encourage you. I want you to be an Elihu. I want you to be the young adult that the old people listen to. I want you to be the 20-something or the 30-something that the old people are like, man, she is so wise. He is so wise. What I think Elihu had that some of you have is this deep respect for the Lord, for his word, and for each other. And so you don't come across as a know-it-all. Instead, you come across as a caring soul that wants God to be elevated and people to know him. You model uh, 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. You model that. You also model a verse that I found when I was about your age, 1 John chapter 2. John says, I'm writing to you, little children, in verse 12, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men. This is the part. I'm writing to you, young men, young adults, because you have overcome the evil one. Then he says it again. I write to you, children, because you've known the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And then listen to this. I write to you, young men, young adults, because you're strong. Do you realize you're like in the prime of your strength? Elihu was in the prime of his strength. He was strong. He had a fire in his belly that an old man couldn't have. All right, to you, young men, because you are strong, and not only because you're strong, but because the word of God lives in you. You can be passionate and strong and fail miserably if this book doesn't live in you. So does it? Do you study it? Do you read it? I think you do because you're here. This is not Bible study light. We dig into this book. I bet you're doing this on the side too. I bet you're like sneaking some quiet times in and spending some time with the Lord. And I would say continue, pour into this book because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one, meaning the sin in your life is becoming less and less by the grace of God. There's this purification, this sanctification that's happening in your life as you walk with the Lord. And so you are living out that 1 Timothy 4.12. You're being an example and you're strong. So this is the time in life when if you want to model after anybody, model after Elihu. He's the Old Testament Timothy. He's the one that, that, was, that was paving the way, leading these old men. But let me just remind you, in the next chapter, when Paul says, 
I write to you, young men, or I'm sorry, John says that when Paul says, be an example to Timothy of life and love, conduct, faith, purity, he then in the next chapter starts off with, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Older women as mothers. Elihu respected his leaders. Jason on Sunday morning had a great sermon out of 1 Thessalonians 5 about this. I would encourage you to go back and listen. So, I think as we transition into Job 38, I want to just remind you, no matter how good of a job Elihu did at addressing Job, at the end of the day, Job still needed to hear from God. And no matter how good of a sermon I might give you or somebody else might give you, no matter how good of, of a job the band does playing and, and Will does leading, no matter how good of a job any of us do, the same thing Job needed, you need and I need. We need to hear from God himself. That's who we need to visit us. Now come with me back to, to Job with his piece of pottery, his three plus one friends, fifth wheeling over there with his, I called it his Wilson a few weeks ago from Castaway, his one little friend, the piece of pottery, the only thing that kept him company didn't talk back to him. At this point, he has probably named it. It's probably a, a Middle Eastern name that we probably wouldn't be able to pronounce very well. But Job, he's in this deep moment of agony. And he's just heard this young guy talk about how big God is and how small we are and how God will show up in a whirlwind. And I think the last thing Job needed was God to show up in a whirlwind. Job needed God to show up in like a Snuggie, like an extra large Snuggie and like bring him into it. He needed God to like turn on uh, the Hallmark Channel and be like, we're going to snuggle up, buddy. I got you. And I'm so sorry that this happened to you. But what Job got was the whirlwind. Look with me at verse 38, or chapter 38, verse 1. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And he says, who is it that darkens the counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I'm going to question you. And you make it known to me. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? In your deepest moment, I remember I was probably, I, was, I don't know, I, was, I had graduated college and I had met this, this girl that I was like, maybe, maybe that's the girl that I'm going to marry. And I remember some really, like, really godly people, influential folks in my life, and they were giving me very conflicting advice. Some would say, yeah, I think that is her. And some would say, no, I don't think that's her. And I remember leaving church one Sunday morning, and I just felt, I was just mad. I was mad at God because he kept, he put this girl and he put other girls in my path. And I, I was like, this is it. This is the one. And then the door would just shut. And I realized it wasn't these voices that were telling me, go for it, don't go for it. It was God who was closing the door. And it was one of the first times in my life I realized I wasn't mad at a human, I was mad at God. Why doesn't he just open the door? 
What's wrong with him? And what I expected, I, I so remember that moment. It was, it was in the summer. It was hot. And we were leaving church. And, uh, and I remember sitting in the car thinking, okay, now is when God's supposed to give me peace. And he didn't. It was like the air conditioner was broken or something in the car, and it just got hotter and hotter, and there was no comfort. And it was like the Lord was saying, can you deal with my choice for you right now? And it was like the last thing that I wanted him to say to me. I wanted him to say, Thomas, here's the peace that transcends all understanding. It's going to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, and it's going to be good, and you're going to feel better by the time you get to, like, the buffet. You're going to feel like a new man. And when you get that ice cream, it's all going to be right with the world. But it didn't get better. I had to sit in that and really wrestle with, do I trust God's plans? This is what's happening. God shows up in a thunderstorm, a tumultuous thunderstorm, a whirlwind. That is not peaceful. Just ask Gatsby, our little Boston Terrier. Today, when I was at home studying, he was not comfortable with the storm. These storms are not comfortable. And he shows up, God shows up intentionally making Job uncomfortable. And then he says things like, not good job, Job. You've been, you've been so faithful. What he says is, who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Do you realize God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Do you realize he has not changed since Job 38? Job wants to feel bad for himself, and God's picking a fight. You need to hear me on this. Job wants to feel sorry for himself. Woe is me. I've been so good. And God's slapping him. And he says, dress for action like a man, Job. He says, get up. You want to square off with me? Let's square off. I'm going to question you. And then he goes through this incredible questioning. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? That's a question you don't reply to, by the way. That's one you're just like, okay, let's go with the next one. You got me there. Well, then you go to verse 12 and he says, oh, by the way, have you commanded the morning? Okay, strike two. You got me there. Like, you don't answer these questions. Verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea? Like, who's going to say yes to that? This is not super encouraging. There's no worship music in the background padding behind him. This is just insult to injury. Job, by the way, is still oozing from his sores. And those annoying friends are still there. Look at verse 17. Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Job, do you understand life and death? Do you understand how it works? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Verse 18, declare if you know all this. Dramatic pause. Verse 19, do you know where light dwells, Job? You know, when it's dark, do you know where I keep the light? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, verse 22? That, that would make my head spin. I'm be like, you have, you have snow stored up? We need to talk about this. Like that's, so Job, you can just imagine, Job is just being pummeled with these questions that make him do what? 
Remember, Elihu is mad because Job has elevated himself and lowered God. What is God doing here? God is lowering Job and elevating himself. He goes on, verse 25, who has a cleft, a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on land where no man is on the desert in which there is no man. Do you see what God is doing here now? God is shifting and he's saying, Job, I am as big as it gets. And by the way, do you know that I care about the desert where no human lives? I take care of all the stuff that no one will ever see. There's been a few times deep in the mountains when I've gone on climbing trips that we'll get someplace really remote and we're up high somewhere and you'll, you'll pull up over a ledge and you set up and you look and you see this flower and you just think, I don't know that anyone else in the world will ever see this flower. This flower was here before I got here and this flower will be here after I leave. God put this flower here because he likes it here. Are you reading between the lines? Because here's what's happening. God is showing Job, Job, I am as big as it gets. And I am also what the psalmist says in Psalm 116, verse 6, I am stooping down to meet with you. In between the lines of all of this language that is so strong that is not comforting is the comforter. This is not a mean, a mean monologue of God just berating Job. This is a loving, hard monologue of God berating Job. He's saying, Job, you need to get back in your place. And you need to see me in my place. And that's the only way this thing's going to work out right. You got to see me in my place, high and lofted up. And you got to see you in your place, low. God reveals multiple things about himself in chapters 38 through 41. He reveals that he has a cosmic, interwoven, indisputable plan. He reveals that he has intentional, intentionally designed all things, including Job's suffering, for that plan. And by the way, he has designed you for that plan, just like he made you on purpose, just like you are. You are fearfully and wonderfully made for his plan. God delights in his plan. You should read about the ostrich. The ostrich is a fascinating thing. It starts in chapter 39 in verse 13. I won't read it to you. You should go read it. God gives this like really long, long explanation of an ostrich. It's very interesting. And so like God loves his plan. He delights in his plan. And this also shows he has a watchful eye. He knows every sparrow that falls. He knows every desert that's there. He knows every drop of rain he puts in the desert or doesn't put in the desert, let alone what he knows about us. Remember, we're the ones he went to the cross for. 
God also has an intervening hand. But what we see most in this whole deal as God lifts himself up to his right position and lowers Job to his right position is that he wants relationship with us. That is what is between the lines of every one of these words on these pages. Chapters 38 through 41 is not just a rebuke of poor Job. It is an invitation of Job. Look how great I am. Look how small you are. And please note that I have stepped out of time and eternity to meet with you. That's how much I value you. And that's what Job needed. He didn't need Elihu or the other three guys. You don't need 100,000 sermons. What you need is God to talk to you. Now, God does talk to you, sometimes through friends, sometimes through sermons, sometimes through worship. But what you need is for God to speak to you and show up to you. Even if it's a hot day in a car after church and he tells you, can you deal with it that I'm closing the door on that thing? At least he showed up and told me that. That tells me that he cares deeply. He cares deeply for Job here. Job is being pressed hard by God. And that reminds me of another pressing that we see in Scripture. This past week we were able to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's, there's the garden splits Uh, it splits a road. It's on both sides. It is the garden that Jesus prayed in. I think I've got a picture of the olive trees that are up there. This is the uh, the private garden that you can go to. If we got to go as a big group, it'd be awesome. I would would reserve this garden for you. So we got to go to this garden, and these are olive trees. This is what they look like. There is one olive tree in the Garden of Gethsemane that dates back over 2,000 years. So it would have been in the garden that night in Matthew chapter 26 that Jesus goes and prays. Do you remember Jesus praying three times that night? He prays once, Lord, take this cup. He prays twice, Lord, take the cup. He prays three times, take the cup. Not my will, but your will be done. Every time that he prays, we never get God the Father's response But we can read between the lines and see what his response is by the way that Jesus ends the prayer. Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. Every time Jesus prays these gut-wrenching prayers and drips drops of blood all three times, God says, no, no, no. And it's fascinating that it took place in this place. Do you know what Gethsemane means? It means the place of pressing. It was an olive press. Do you know how many times you press an olive? You press an olive three times. The first press gives the most pure oil. That oil goes straight to the temple. It's God's oil. So the first press is for God. The second time you press an olive, you get the olive oil that you and I would eat. So the second press is for the people that are immediately around. And the third press 
That's where you get the pulpy, thickest part, least edible part of the olive. It's all it's got left. And that's what you put in a little lamp and you light it and it gives light to all who are around. Job had three friends pressing him and pressing him and pressing him. Job was pressed really hard. And so was our Savior three times, just like the olive is pressed. And every time that Jesus prayed, God said, no. And it wasn't because God's not good or kind or wise. It's because God is good and kind and wise that he says, no. So many people walk away from the faith when God says no, when God shows up different than they anticipated. You know what 666 is in the Bible, right? It's the mark of the beast. I saw this past week while we were looking up so many different Bible verses. A man told me, he said, you know what 666 is in John, don't you? And I said, no. He said, look at it. So I looked over in John chapter 6, verse 66, and it says this, and many turned away from following him. Most people would have never made it to chapter 38 in Job. They would have folded and become pagan. But Job hangs on. And what happens when he hangs on? God shows up. The whole line that we studied over and over again in the book of Revelation is you be a conqueror. You don't give up. Remember the verse in 1 John chapter 2. I write to you, young men, young adults, because why? Because you are strong. You are strong, and so you don't quit when things get hard. You don't quit when God doesn't make sense. You hang on, and you wait for him to show up. Make them pry your dead hands off your Bible as you wait for God to show up. Do you realize what happens when you start to, to understand as Job is in 38, 39, 40, and 41 that God is big and we are small? You realize this, this even affects when we get this right that it is good that I am small and it is better that he is big? You realize it affects even like super practical things like your body image? You start to appreciate, oh, God made me like this. Oh, God gave me that family. Okay, God didn't give me that family. Oh, God gave me this intellect, but he didn't give me that intellect. Oh, God gave me like non-tanning skin. That one we're still working out. But he gave so-and-so tanning skin. Like all these little things that we spend so much time and energy wrestling with. They start to become just embraced when you realize I'm not the center of it all. He is. He's big and high and lofted, and I am small. And it is amazing that he wants to stoop down and meet with me. You'll be able to say what David said. In Psalm 16, 
Wouldn't it be great if you could say this? David said in Psalm 16, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I like my life. Like, what if you could say, at right now, in this moment, like, I'm good with it. This is where God has me, and I'm good with it. Because you truly understand what God is trying to get into Job's head in these, in these chapters, that God has it all figured out. I learned this expression this past week from an Arab man. He said, uh, I wanted to do something, and he wanted to do something, but a guy who was like over us told us we had to do a different thing, and we looked at each other, and he said, let me tell you an Arabic expression. And I said, tell me an Arabic expression. He said, tie the donkey where the master tells you, even if you know it will fall off a cliff. And I said, okay. And so over and over again, when I would want to do something, but somebody else would want to do something else, like, and we conflicted, he said, tie the donkey where the master of the donkey tells you to tie it. I was like, yes, Sam, I will tie the donkey where the master of the, but it's going to fall off the cliff. And he said, tie it where he tells you. When you start understanding that God has said, this is where I'm tying the donkey and you're the donkey. Even if you're like, I think I'm going to fall off a cliff. But you start to understand it's okay. He told me to go here. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to be his person because he is big and I'm small. I'm telling you, when you get to that place, you will be so usable by the Lord, it will blow your mind. I want you to understand, God is not obligated to make sense, to meet expectations to meet our time frame, to give explanations. God is obligated to be good and wise and just. Let me say it to you again. God is not obligated to make sense, to meet our expectations, to meet our time frame, or to give explanations. God is obligated to be good and wise and just. And some of the times when he is most good and wise and just are when he does not make sense and he does not meet our expectations or our time frame or give explanations. In Job chapter 40, he gives another rouse to Job. And he said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Job finally has enough courage to respond. And Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I spoke in once, I will not answer. Twice, I will proceed no further. And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Here's what God asked of Job, and here's what I'm going to ask of you as we enter into our worship tonight. I, I hate it if you're in a spot of hurting. My heart breaks for you. But I think the very best thing we can do is square off 
with exactly what God told Job. A high view of God, a small view of me, opens the door to both knowing and loving God and accepting where he's put me. To receive that, I'm going to have to toughen up and accept God's position and mine. I've got to be able to tie the donkey where the owner tells me. So here's my admonition for you tonight. I want you, for the next 15 minutes as we sing, to stop feeling sorry for yourself if your expectations haven't been met by God. I want you to live out Job 40, verse 7. I want you to dress like a man. I want you to act like a grown-up. I want you to start to see that God is big and you and I are small. And he can do whatever he wants with us. So don't ask him in the next few minutes to like give you that husband or wife or that job or that thing. Just stop it. I want you to square up with him and just say, Lord, do I really trust that you are big and that is good and I am small and that is okay and whatever you want to do, you can do. Just let me be on your team. And it doesn't feel real motivational. It doesn't feel real snuggly. But sometimes what we really need is to wipe the tears away and to get to work for the Lord. And we need to stop thinking, what about this? What about that? When's he going to do this? When's he going to do that? And just start thinking, this is life, and this is where the donkey is tied, and can I deal with it? Can I deal with him being God and me not? Our greatest example of that is Jesus in the garden. Jesus could have called a legion of angels to come and rescue him. Thousands and thousands of angels. But he knew because he stepped out of heaven and was placed into a human body and destined to go to the cross, that his job was not to do what he wanted. His job was to do what the Father wanted, which gave all of us access to him, relationship with him. Thank the Lord, according to Philippians 2, that he humbled himself greatly and modeled what it's like to be the perfect human and let God the Father do his thing to even his own son. So let's let him do what he wants with us and let's be okay with it because he's God. And he promises at the end of the day that he will be good and that he is wise and he is just and he is kind. Let's just let him finish what he started. So stand with me as I pray. Father, I come to you now. As we look at these strong words you gave Job, And Lord, 
that continue to get even stronger as you say to him to dress for action like a man and to stand and be ready to be questioned by you. Lord, you come to him in a storm, but at least you come to him. Father, I thank you that you stoop down to meet with us. Lord, would you give us the strength to stand before you and to say, you are God and we are not. Your will be done, not ours. Lord, would you please in this moment stoop down to meet with us? Because more than the answers to our prayers, we need the one who answers prayers to show up. We need you to meet with us, Lord. Would you please be strong, be firm, be in our face if you need to be in our face. But regardless, meet with us. We know you love us, Lord. If you didn't, you wouldn't stoop down to hear us. You wouldn't have sent your son. Lord, help us to handle by your grace you being God and us being very small. It's in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.